Hello, and welcome to the Murderosity Podcast, where we discuss all things murder, mayhem, the mysterious, and the macabre. I'm your co-host, Bob Hancock, joined on the other side by Rebel Roan. Rebel, how are you doing this week? I'm doing really good. I'm excited about this case. Well, I guess not excited, but I'm interested in this case. How are you? You know, this case has been one that's fascinated me as well, simply because of the method in which we found out about it. So you want to give a little background into that for us? Yeah. So this case was originally intended to be a missing person spotlight, but instead we regret reporting it as a murder case. This case takes us to Leon Valley near San Antonio, Texas. So originally this was meant to be the missing persons case in the Dee Dee Blanchard slash Gypsy Rose Blanchard case that we did at the end of the year. And it was actually the day that we set to record that we found out quite literally minutes before recording that that's what had happened because we do right. tend to like to check these cases right beforehand. We've had one other case, I believe that where the person was actually found mm-hmm. shortly before we recorded. So we like to do our due diligence and this one was one that kind of hit us with a bit of a tragedy. I always say at the end of the episodes, you know, help us find these people so they don't end up on our podcast. And even though we hadn't put that out, it felt like it was one. Right. And it is unfortunate, but we're going to follow this case through, though. Now, you said we were going to Leon Valley. Now, yes, Leon Valley is actually kind of an interesting little town. So Leon Valley is a city in Bejar County, Texas, in the U.S., It's an enclave in the northwestern side of San Antonio, and it's part of the San Antonio-New Braunfels Metropolitan Statistical Area. Now, in the 2020 census, the population was around 11,500 people. Now, Leon Valley is an independent municipality, and it's completely surrounded by the city of San Antonio. Now, the way that happened was Leon Valley was developed in the 1940s actually as a farming community on Bandera Road between Helotes and San Antonio. Now, in 1952, the residents actually filed a petition for incorporation as an independent city simply because they didn't want to be annexed by the city of San Antonio. And the the city itself was incorporated in 1954 under the leadership of its founding mayor, Raymond Rimkus. And in 1960, it had a population of about 536. Ten years later, its population grew to 1,960 in 1970, and by 1990, it had 9,581 people. And so you literally have a city surrounded by another city. So it's it's not a super common thing to see. Oftentimes, these cities just these small towns just get incorporated as the larger city expands outward. But. Yeah, it, Leon Valley has kind of a history of a, a fierceness of independence, if you will. Definitely. However, I don't think that's what you've brought us here today for. No. So, so what have you brought us here for? So today we're going to look at the case of Savannah Soto and Matthew Guerrera. Savannah Soto, age 18, and Matthew Guerra were age 22, were soon to be proud parents. They lived together. When pregnant Soto was about a week past her due date with a son she'd planned to name Fabian, so she was scheduled to be induced on December 23, 2023. Guerra had a criminal history which included unlawful carry of a weapon, evading police, 
and an assault charge causing bodily injury, which was against Soto. However, the family stated that they were now in a good place and happy together. Soto was last seen near her apartment on December 22, 2023, in a 2013 gray Kia owned by Guerra. When Soto did not show up to the appointment for her scheduled induction, the family first tried calling her in Guerra, then began calling the hospitals in the surrounding areas to see if they could locate her. Guerra's family also was not able to get a hold of him. When they had no luck, they contacted the police, who first attempted a welfare check, but then ultimately issued a clear alert. Clear Alert was established in 2019 and stands for Coordinated Law Enforcement Adult Rescue. According to Allison Steele, it became the law two years after her daughter, Haley Mandotti, was murdered. She stated there are criteria that must be met for a clear alert to be issued, stating there has to be some indication that their disappearance was life-threatening and involuntary. The criteria for a clear alert are a person is 18 to 64 years old whose whereabouts are unknown, a preliminary investigation verified that the adult is in imminent danger of bodily injury or death, or that the disappearance was involuntary, such as abduction or kidnapping. The request must be made within 72 hours of the person's disappearance, and there must be sufficient information available to the public to help locate the person, a suspect or a vehicle used in the incident. For three days, the family of the missing couple, along with media, posted missing persons information, though it was mainly about Soto. On December 26, 2023, a resident of Danny K. Drive in San Antonio contacted the family and stated that they believed the gray Kia Optimo was parked there. The family contacted the Leon Valley Police to let them know the location, and they went to investigate. The police verified the vehicle information with a check on the license plate and VIN number, and it was Guerrero's car. Upon arrival, they located the missing couple, and both were deceased. It was evident that they'd been there a few days. The investigator recognized Soto from a previous case he worked on, in which Soto's 15-year-old brother had been shot and killed in 2022. In October 2023, the man accused of her brother's murder made a gesture at the family in the courtroom, and many members of the family jumped over the partition and attacked him. The case that you're referring to was the one of Ethan Soto? Yes. Victor Nathaniel Rivas, who was 17 years old at the time, was arrested and charged with murder in what appeared to be an act of revenge for a drug robbery. Rivas was accused of shooting Ethan Soto at about 3 p.m. on May 16th, 22, after he was lured from his home in the 2100 block of Alston Drive near Callaghan Road on the northwest side of town. An arrest warrant affidavit stated that tension between the teenagers had started hours before the deadly shooting. Investigators said that Soto actually robbed Rivas of THC cartridges on May 15th and that Rivas shot at Soto and his family home, but Soto wasn't injured in that incident. Soto's mother then attempted to resolve the situation, and what she did was she went to pay Rivas for the stolen cartridges. So Soto's mother then met with Rivas to give him the money, and then hours later, Rivas actually messaged an underage girl on Instagram and asked her to set up a drug deal with Soto. Now, Rivas stated, quote, several times that he was looking for the person who robbed him and was going to catch him when he saw him, end quote. And quote comes from the actual arrest affidavit. Now, the girl then messaged Soto on Instagram and acted as if she wanted to buy THC cartridges from him and arranged to meet him near his home. At about 6.55 p.m. on May 16th, the girl told Soto that she was nearby, so he left his home to go meet her. 
but the girl was not there at the location, and instead Soto was ambushed by Rivas. Soto was actually shot multiple times. He made it to the hospital, but that's where he died. There was a witness, though, and the witness told police that he saw a man running from the scene and driving off in a golden sedan, possibly a Jaguar, with a red hood. The affidavit also stated that Soto's mother confronted Rivas after the shooting, and Rivas denied involvement in it. Rivas did say that he wished that he had shot Soto, but said he wouldn't kill him over the $60 that the THC cartridges were worth. Police, however, searched Rivas's phone and Instagram records and discovered that he worked with the juvenile girl to lure Soto away from his home. Rivas knew that he couldn't message Soto himself because he'd previously been robbed by him and had shot at him already, so he needed somebody else to do it for him. Now, the affidavit added that after the shooting, Rivas reported that his car was stolen, and his car was a gold Jaguar with a red hood, and it was later found at an IHOP on the west side. However, phone records revealed that the car wasn't stolen at all, but that Rivas had ditched it there an hour after the shooting, and that he had also asked a friend for help in finding a new car. Cell phone data also pinged Rivas to the area of the shooting at 2.52 p.m., and also in the area of IHOP an hour later. Now, when he took the stand, he made a gesture towards the victim's family, which caused a lot of them to charge and rush him and start beating him. And it took about 30 seconds for court bailiffs to restore order and pull everybody out. And four people were charged with assault and disruption of court proceedings. The judge was fairly lenient on most of it. He said that Courtrooms are are powder kegs where you have families of victims of violent crime and people who are alleged to have committed violent crimes. So sometimes it's really easy to set something off there. And he also said that the people that had assaulted Rivas would still be allowed to attend court proceedings in the future. Now, it is unclear if Savannah was one of the people that charged at the person that killed her brother or not. I say this because he was found guilty, but you know, by now it's kind of a moot point, but a lot of people in this case had wondered if these two cases were somehow interconnected. We don't know. We have to wait and see as far as I've read, but that's the background on the case of her brother. So what could they tell about Savannah, though, when they found her? So they could tell that Soto had head trauma and she was in the front passenger seat along with her unborn baby. And Guerra was in the back seat with an apparent gunshot wound to the head. It appeared he had been dragged into the vehicle and no weapon was found. The police requested a search warrant so they could gain access to the vehicle. While waiting for the warrant, the police officer contacted the families. They informed the officer that Guerra had sold narcotics using his cell phone as well as social media. He would post photos on social media of money and drugs. According to Guerra's family, he had been the subject of attempted robberies and had been fired at with a gun before. Families gave the cell phone numbers and social media profiles to the police. When the search warrant arrived, the investigation continued and they were able to find a spent shell casing inside the vehicle. There was blood on the outside of the car and Guerra had drag marks on his back. This led the police to believe that the murders took place elsewhere and the victims were placed in the car later. They found Guerra's cell phone in the car. 
Surveillance videos of the area showed a dark gray Chevy Silverado with the lights off pulling up along a fence. Then the victim's car pulled up beside it. A heavy set man exited the truck and went over to the Kia. He then took something out of his truck and went back to the car. It looked like it was a towel of some sort, and he used it to wipe down the vehicle. Another individual also briefly stepped out of the Kia, and then the man got back into his truck, and the two drove around the back of the building. Moments later, the Chevy left, but the Kia didn't. It was believed that Soto and Guerra were already deceased by the time the vehicles were seen on camera, and that neither of the people in the video looked like Guerra, but both were identified as Hispanic males. On January 2nd, 2024, Detective Knox at the Technical Investigations Unit was able to provide an address on Charlie Chan Drive that was last searched by Guerra. His cell phone location also pinged in the area, which was only a couple of blocks away from the location that they were later discovered deceased. After doing some research, the detective discovered the Chevy Silverado matching the vehicle description at the address. He pulled a DMV photo of the owner and it matched the man in the video. Homicide detectives went to the Charlie Chan address and met with Ramon Preciado, who was the driver of the truck. He stated that he knew why detectives were there and that they needed to speak with his 19-year-old son, Christopher Preciado. Both men were transported to San Antonio Police Department to be interviewed, while a search warrant allowed additional investigators to search the residence. While at the San Antonio Police Department, both men were read their Miranda rights. Ramon Preciado admitted to meeting with his son in the parking lot of the apartment complex and to being the driver of the Chevy Silverado. According to the arrest affidavit, he assisted Christopher Preciado in moving the bodies, and it stated, Ramon Preciado knowingly treated the human corpses of Matthew Guerra and Savannah Soto and the unborn child of Savannah Soto named Fabian in an offensive manner by leaving them in the abandoned vehicle. He was charged with abuse of a corpse and altering, destroying, or concealing evidence of a human corpse. He is being held on a $600,000 bond. The detective spoke with Christopher Preciado, and he stated that Guerrera and Soto drove to his residence in order to sell him marijuana. Then he stated that Guerrero pointed a weapon at him, which he was able to manipulate, using quotes on that stated in the affidavit that he said manipulate, resulting in Soto getting shot. Then Christopher Preciado stated that the gun was again pointed at him and he manipulated the weapon again, resulting in Guerrero being shot. He was charged with capital murder, abuse of a corpse, and altering, destroying, or concealing evidence of a human corpse. He is being held on a $2 million bond. The medical examiner stated that Guerrero died from a contact gunshot wound to the head, so Christopher Preciado's account of the deaths is conflicting with the evidence. A contact gunshot wound is what the medical examiner says is what killed him. So a contact shot is a gunshot wound incurred while the muzzle of the firearm is in direct contact with the body at the moment of discharge. Contact shots are often the result of close range gunfight, suicide, or very importantly, execution, which is truthfully what this sounds like more than a struggle over a gun where he quote, manipulated the weapon and it went off. Mm -hmm. That could have been a close range shot. However, they're different. We'll get further into that. But wounds caused by contact shots are devastating as the human body absorbs the entire discharge of the cartridge and not just a projectile. 
So in this case, the injection of rapidly expanding propellant gases may cause significantly more damage even than the bullet itself. Even a blank cartridge can very easily cause lethal wounds if it's fired while in contact with the human body. Basically, when a bullet is fired, there's an explosion that happens inside, and it's the expanding gases that project the bullet down or the projectile through the barrel and out of it, and then those gases escape. In this case, the gases have nowhere else to go. So in the field of forensic ballistics, the characteristics of a contact shot are often an important part of recreating a shooting. A contact shot produces a distinctive wound with extensive tissue damage from the burning propellant. So unlike a shot from point blank range like what he is claiming, the powder burns will cover only a very small area right around the entry wound, and oftentimes there will be a distinct pattern, which is called tattooing. And star-shaped tattooing is often caused by the rifling in the gun barrel. Rifling is a groove that's cut into the gun barrel, and the cartridge expands, holds onto that, and twists as it goes down the barrel, and that creates a much more accurate projectile. Now, the rifling, however, is distinct. You have a certain number of turns per length, and that's how it's named. But because of that, each you know different rifles and different gun barrels will have different distinct patterns. They could also be made by flash suppressors or muzzle brakes. So the shape of the tattooing may actually help identify the firearm used. Whereas at point blank range, you have a larger area of powder burn. Now, in many cases, the body's absorption of the muzzle blast will also act as a silencer. So it traps the propellant gases under the skin and it muffles the sound of the shot, which could also explain why people didn't hear these gunshots going off. Because usually when a gun is fired inside a, a vehicle, it's incredibly loud because of the echoing within. But fired as a, as a contact gunshot wound, the human body acts as its own silencer. What he's saying and what the evidence is saying, like you pointed out, they just don't line up. Now, it will be up to a prosecutor to show that. It will be up to a jury of his peers to determine if they're seeing the same thing that I am. I am not a ballistics expert, but I have spent a lot of time with firearms and understand the idea behind it. So I see why the prosecutor and the police would be very hesitant to believe his story. So other than these two, was anybody else involved in this? Yes. On January 4th, 2024, Ramon Preciado's wife, Murda Romanos, was interviewed. She stated that on the night in question, she was in her residence and could not recall the events of the night. She stated that she thought she was sleeping. During the search of the residence, Romano's bedroom door was locked. When asked about unlocking the door, she provided the key and stated that she kept her door locked and that she was the only one with the key. Investigators searched the room and found a firearm concealed in the room that was later forensically matched to the shell casing found inside the Kia. When asked about the firearm, she stated that it was hers and was given to her by a family member. So the way that they determine whether or not a weapon was used in a crime is through forensic ballistics or forensic firearm examination. So what that is, is the forensic process of examining the characteristics of firearms or bullets left behind at a crime scene. 
Specialists in this field will try to link bullets to weapons and weapons to individuals. So they can raise and record obliterated serial numbers in an attempt to find registered owners of the weapon, look for fingerprints on a weapon and cartridges. Like all forensic specialties, forensic firearms examiners are subject to being called to testify in court as expert witnesses. However, the reliability of some techniques of forensic firearms examination have been criticized, and I'll hit on that in a moment. But before that, I'd like to look at some of the history behind this. So the ability to compare ammunition is a direct result of the invention of rifling around the turn of the 16th century, which I had mentioned earlier as grooves cut into the inside of the barrel. So by forcing the bullet to spin as it travels down the barrel of the weapon, the precision is greatly increased. Now, at the same time, the rifling does leave marks on the bullet that are indicative of that particular barrel. Prior to mass production of firearms, each barrel and bullet mold was handmade by gunsmiths, making each of them unique. So the first successful document case of forensic firearms examination actually occurred in 1835, when a member of the Bow Street Runners in London matched a recovered bullet from a murder victim to a specific mold in a suspect's home, confirming that he made the bullet. This gave further evidence that the bullet maker was the perpetrator and he, in the end, was convicted. Now, on the flip side of that, one of the first uses of this knowledge in 1915 to exonerate an individual was Charles Stilo of the murder of his neighbors. Stilo was sentenced to death and appealed to Charles S. Whitman, who was the governor of New York at the time. Now, the government was not convinced by the evidence used to convict Stilo, and Whitman halted the execution until an inquiry could be conducted. And after further examination, it was shown that Stilo's firearm could not have fired the bullet that was recovered from the victims. So the invention of the comparison microscope by Calvin Goddard and Philip O'Gravel in 1925 really modernized the forensic examination of firearms because it was the first time that simultaneous comparison of two different objects at the same time was allowed. And it really let them examine the striations for matches and therefore make a more definitive statement as to whether or not they matched. Now, as far as the controversy goes, as recently as 2020, Etio Idror and Nicholas Skurich looked into the validity of ballistics forensics experts when attempting to make an identification on a shell or a bullet. And they found that while some experts would come to the conclusion that bullets were a definitive match, another expert looking at the exact same evidence would determine it as inconclusive. Now, Drawer and Scourge argued that an inconclusive determination really does affect the error rate of the study and provides very little confidence in the overall findings of the scientists. Now, according to Drawer and Scourge, the error rate, which was between 0 and 1%, should actually be a lot higher. And the reasoning behind this is that if an answer was marked as inconclusive, it counted towards the correct answer which really decreases the error rate and makes it lower than it probably should be. And they wondered how different the error rate would be if the inconclusive part was not an option. In addition, Dror and Skurich noted that the scientists seemed to come with more conclusive decisions on the evidence if there was an added part as a human life hanging in the balance. Now, the reason that this is important is because if an expert witness comes to the stand and they're presenting evidence that is seen to have a zero to 1% failure rate and that they are right 99% of the time. And they're saying, yes, this person did it, or 
yes, this bullet matches this person's firearm, it really lends a lot of weight to the case against the individual or to exonerate the individual either way. And when it's not definitive enough, the error rate needs to be adjusted simply because of how much significance and how much weight it bears at trial. So that's what they're kind of looking at now. That's a bit of the history and the wherewithal behind the forensics ballistics. But just like any type of forensics, there's always going to be some questions and controversy. There is less in this case than there are in, say, dental or even some DNA, but it is still there. Now, how did they catch on that Romanos was involved in any of this? So Romanos was also seen on neighboring home surveillance cameras getting into and out of the Chevy Silverado on the night of the murders when she said she'd been at home. She was charged with tampering with evidence, abuse of a corpse, and altering, destroying, or concealing evidence of a human corpse. Her arrest is more, much more recently, so I'm not sure that I wasn't able to find a bond amount for her. She was just arrested, so it's kind of hard to tell. I believe she was so. arrested yesterday, in fact. So Yeah, that being January 10th, so the time that this airs, it will be about a week afterwards. There is, there's definitely not going to be as much of information on her as the other two. Yeah. Christopher Preciado is scheduled to appear in court on the indictment February 5th, and Ramon Preciado is scheduled to appear February 6th, 2024. The district attorney's office has not declared whether or not they will seek the death penalty for Christopher Preciado. Guerrero's father, Gabriel Guerrero, spoke out, stating, We're all just crushed and trying to pick up the pieces and go from here. Savannah's mother, Gloria Cordova, stated, I hope they pay for whatever they did to my daughter. Funeral services for Guerrero were on January 8, 2024. Services for Soto were on January 12, 2024, and she was buried the following day. This is still an ongoing case, so we'll provide updates as it moves forward. The biggest part on that is, as you said, this is an ongoing case. We as podcast hosts and co-hosts and whatnot, we do typically try to keep a fairly open mind and just present the case as it is. And that's kind of what we're going to have to do here. The information is kind of a slow drip. We're going to find out more and more as the case progresses, of course. And we will keep everybody up to date on that. I know this is usually where I give a lot of my my closing thoughts and you know who I think is right and wrong and all of that and whatnot. But in this case, I think that just because it's so new, I'm going to let the justice system play out. We'll see what it is. And then during one of our updates, I can give a little bit more thought on that. What I will say is that this is an incredible tragedy. A young family mm-hmm. was massacred. A young baby that didn't even get its first breath yet, its mom and dad, all killed for reasons that we don't even know yet. So regardless, I find this to be a great tragedy, and hopefully the families will be able to, as Gabriel said, to pick up the pieces and go from there. And I do hope that justice will be done in any case, that the people that did this will pay for what they did as Gloria also stated. So it's not the easiest sometimes for us to keep our neutrality, I suppose, but 
for me again this this is just too new we haven't we haven't heard enough yet but i i am my heart definitely definitely goes out to the the family of the victims here and on that note i do believe rebel that it is time it is time in fact for our missing person of the week yes it is so who do you have for us this week our next missing person is Vicky Nanya Penaloza. She was last heard from on November 3rd, 2021 in Querétaro, Mexico. She is five foot to five foot one inches tall and weighs about 110 pounds. She is a member of the Gila River tribe. She is originally from Arizona and had been living in South Dakota until she received a call to tend to her father in Mexico. Penaloza was last heard from trying to arrange a trip back to the United States after her father kicked her out of the house during an altercation. A missing persons report has been filed in Querétaro, Mexico, but the U.S. Embassy in Mexico is in charge of the case. If you have any information about Vicky Nena Penaloza, if you're in the U.S., call the Gillette River Tribal Police Department and speak to Detective Jeff Hunter at 520-562-3362. If you're in Mexico, contact the U.S. Embassy at 555-080-2000. I can't stress enough how terrifying the situation must be to the parents and everyone really involved. This, yeah. uh, this is a very young woman who we would very much like to see brought home. She was trying to make it home, so... This is truly just a another tragedy. Any missing persons case is always a tragedy, especially when it's been this long. It's just, yeah, you really want to find them as quickly as possible. So I really do encourage you, dear listeners, if you do know anything at all about any of these cases, please, you know, give a phone call to the numbers that Rebel's given. You can always also call Crime Stoppers anonymously, and they'll get the information where it needs to go. But yeah, let's try and get people home instead of like this week having them on our podcast as we want to bring this information to you and we want to give you episodes. It's still always a tragedy. So. So, Rebel, I think my emotional meter has run its course for the day. Yes. So if our dear listeners who have been so awesome and supportive so far, want to help other people find us, where should they tell them to go? So we can be found on social media under Murderosity or Murderosity Podcast. We can be found on Podbean, which is our hosting platform, as well as most of the major podcasting sites, so Spotify, Apple, Amazon, so on. And show notes are always on Murderosity.com. And then if you have any tips or anything that you would like to, us to talk about on the show, you can email us at murderosity at gmail.com. And again, dear listeners, we do love hearing from you. A lot of the cases that we've been recording have come from our listeners. But drop us a line. Let us know what you think about this case. Did anything stand out to you? We're always interested to hear what you have to say, and we'll respond as well. Hit us up on any of the social media sites that were mentioned or Go ahead and give us a send us an email. We do love reading them and we try to answer every one of them in a timely manner. So that's definitely ways that you can give us a little bit of support. So we love bringing this content to you and we'd like to continue doing so. Exactly. So I think 
Rebel, that we've said about all there is to say about this this week. What do you think? Yeah, I think that about does it for us this week. All right. Well, on that note, then, I'm going to tell everybody to stay safe out there, and we'll catch you on the next one.